What's the hardest kind of movie to make? Sometimes it seems like it's all of them. But nowadays, a lot of people at every level are talking about how impossible it is to do comedy anymore. And there's a variety of reasons. But the marketplace isn't as excited or enthusiastic about comedy in general. But audiences are, because everybody loves comedy, right? For some reason, we are seeing less and less of it. My guest today on the No Film School podcast is John Hamburg. And he's probably one of the more prolific working writers, directors, filmmakers in the comedy sphere. He burst on the scene working on movies like Meet the Parents and Zoolander and collaborating with all the legendary talents involved there, writing those scripts or coming in and helping on those scripts. And his new movie, Me Time, is available on Netflix now. It's got Kevin Hart and Mark Wahlberg in it. And John is, like so many of us, a filmmaker who just came up loving certain movies, especially comedy, wanted to make them. But he really answers or tries to answer some of the questions as to what makes a good comedy? How do you do it in this environment, the one that so many people claim you can't do it in? Clearly, you can. But also, how you effectively tell a story through comedy instead of just wall-to-wall joke, which is an interesting approach all on its own. But look, comedy is necessary, and it's one of the great genres historically in all of storytelling, right? It's comedy and drama used to be, or comedy and tragedy, like the two things. So why aren't we going after more of them? What's holding us back? And how can we be better at it and maybe approach it responsibly and still be hilarious and all of that? It's, a, uh, it's an interesting topic. And John has a lot of thoughts. And I hope you're all interested to hear them. I'm really glad to have you here. This is exciting. I want to talk about me time coming out this weekend or August 26th, if you're listening to this later. But I also want to talk to you just about your career in general and sort of start off with what initially got you interested in filmmaking. Yeah, well, great to be here with you. What got me interested in filmmaking, I had always done comedy. This is like in middle school, high school, I was a little comedy nerd. And it sounds like a cliche, but my parents gave me a video camera for my, I think it was my 15th birthday. And I had thought prior to that, oh, I want to be the editor of a Lampoon or a comedy magazine or something like that. But they gave me this video camera and I started to make short films. And, you know, I remember one we screened in front of my high school and it killed, you know, and that (laughs) was... That was the drug. You know what I mean? That was uh, hearing that laughter. Literally, I was like, it felt very natural to make movies and put all this comedy that I had in my head into a cinematic form. And I was interested in cameras and lenses and I got obsessed and, you know, and that was it really. I was from, you know, middle of high school on, I truly, my dream was to be a writer director of movie comedies. So it came true. That's amazing. (laughs) <laughs> I, I'm very, very grateful. Yeah, no, it, 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 I got to do it. You know, you never know. But I was fortunate and had a lot of, a lot of luck and the right timing. And it, what were the kind of you mentioned lampoons? What were some of the comedies that you experienced up to 
to that age that made you know, like, I'm a comedy guy. I love comedy. I want to do this. Because I know the feeling of the drug. Like, once you've done something and an audience has laughed at it, that's, like, one of the great feelings on earth, in my opinion, as well. But, like, what kind of, like, that you watch and you're like, oh, my God, this is what I want. This is the best. So, I mean, very early on, my parents took me to see The Jerk with Steve Martin, Mm. which totally inappropriate for a kid my age. (laughs) But I was laughing so hard that they literally had to remove me from the theater. They thought I was going to hyperventilate. And we lived in New York City, but we had this weekend house in Vermont, which is like four hours away. And we would listen to comedy albums in the car. And again, Steve Martin, we'd listen to his albums. Again, totally inappropriate for a kid my age. So I loved his comedy. And then when I got a little bit older, Saturday Night Live, and that was, you know, the Eddie Murphy era. Mm-hmm. And then a little bit later, Christopher Guest and Billy Crystal and Martin Short, that era. I just love that. We would quote all the lines and, you know, come in Monday morning to school and talk about the sketches, you know, so that those were. And then Late Night with David Letterman was a really formative thing for me. I, I loved his comedy. It was so off kilter and it just mm-hmm. spoke to me. And, you know, and then, of course, movies. Beyond the jerk, there was, you know, all the Ivan Reitman movies and Animal House and Stripes and Ghostbusters, movies like that. And then then the Coen brothers, Raising Arizona was a was a seminal movie for me. So that's a few of them. Yeah. Well, I you know, it's so it's fun to talk to somebody who's loved and been in comedy because we don't get to do that. I don't get to do that very often. Okay. And I love it myself. Okay. And great. There is a shrinking, it feels like. A shrinking amount of comedy hitting our theaters and our television sets in the way that you just described countless amazing movies, some of which aren't even billed as like comedies. Like Ghostbusters is hilarious, but is it? It's a comedy, but it's like there's other stuff going on too, right? It's got it. So, like, and I feel like the movies you've made, like starting off with, with the ones you wrote, are just, you know, some of the great comedies of this time. And I'm curious how you navigated this era and this sort of the shrinking, I don't know what it is. Maybe you can tell us from the inside, like why is it that we're getting less of them and how is it harder to get them through all the gatekeepers? And, you know, you've worked with some of the great comedy, like from Jay Roach to Ben Stiller to like everything. Like, so can you just kind of tell us like what's going on in the comedy landscape cinematically these days? Because like there's still great comics all over the place and people still want to laugh, right? Yeah, I mean, I can try from my perspective. <laughs> I believe me, I, I think about it all the time. I mean, because yeah, when I was coming up, there was a comedy every two weeks in the theaters and so many. And, you know, now there's really not too many. But I do think audiences like them as much as they always have. They just don't necessarily get them as much. I think one thing that happened was, and I'm not going to say anything people don't know, but I think one one thing that happened was people decided they didn't need to go to the theater to see them. Mm. They like them just as much, but they'll just wait because as the theaters were prolifer- are proliferated with Marvel movies or movies of that ilk or Star Wars movies, mm-hmm. like people are going, okay, yeah, that, that funny movie, I, I'll just go see it at home. I don't need to go and pay all the money for the babysitter and parking and popcorn, you know, I need that's reserved for big visual effects extravaganzas. So I think studios started to get wary, you know, of making these movies theatrically. And then, but then thankfully, I think some streamers recognized that audiences 
like these movies and they stepped in and sort of filled the void that, you know, Universal and Sony used to have the market on. So I do Mm. think there's that, you know, I do think our culture is in a good way, I believe, you know, way more sensitive and thoughtful, you know, about offending people and being mindful uh, and being inclusive. And I think all that is awesome. But I think certain comedy writer directors or writers feel scared of, you know, I'm going to offend somebody, I'm going to do that. And so I think that's also caused some people to leave the genre, if that makes sense. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever wanted to watch something and it's just not available in your region? Have you ever been curious what UK Netflix or maybe some other country's version of some of the popular streamers has available that your local one doesn't? Well, there's something called NordVPN. And by using NordVPN, with the click of a button, you can access all kinds of content that maybe you didn't even know existed. With 5,000 plus server options, no show is out of your reach. So use my link, nordvpn.com forward slash nofilmschool, and you can receive a huge discount on a two-year plan plus one free month. We all love to binge shows, but privacy is a big deal too. NordVPN keeps your information encrypted so you never have to worry about your IP or location getting out. We all love watching and streaming all these shows, but we also care about our privacy, and NordVPN keeps your information encrypted so you never have to worry about your IP or location getting out. And they've also doubled down on keeping you safe with their new threat protection feature. So say goodbye to intrusive website ads and malware. Even if you download an infected file, threat protection will kick in and delete it before it makes a mess of your computer or whatever device you're using. So don't forget that there is actually no risk to you by trying this because there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So give it a try. If you like it, great. If you don't, you get a full refund and you can pretend the whole thing never happened. Check out my link, nordvpn.com forward slash nofilmschool to get your subscription started today. Sure. Yeah, no, it all does. You've said so much there and there's so much I want to follow up on specifically. But (laughs) like, for example, talking about the theater. Do people not, I guess a lot of people have been willing to let go of how incredible it is to see a very funny movie in a theater, including some of the ones you wrote, like seeing Zoolander and Meet the Parents in the theater and having that communal just hilarity is an amazing experience. And I think it's sad that we're losing it. I agree. I mourn that. And I feel two things. I feel really grateful that I got to make movies in a time where we could watch them communally in a theater and, you know, opening night, go from theater to theater and watch people laughing their asses off and rocking back and forth. I mean, we still get that even making a movie for Netflix, we preview our movies, test screen our movies in movie theaters to uh, dial so in you get to, so you So that's, that's really interesting to hear. Can, yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt, but like that, that says a lot. So that's how you identify stuff. Yeah, we, we do multiple test screenings and 
dial it in. And so I've seen this, I've seen me time with, you know, hundreds, thousands of audience members. And that's helped us a lot, you know, figure out where the laughs are, where the story is working and not and dial it in. And so we still have that experience. But of course, you know, there are times where you're hearing the entire audience laugh or, or rock in their seats and you're going, okay, it's, you know, I love this and I'm glad it's working. And it's a little bit of a bummer that they're never going to really get that experience, mm. you know, but at the end of the day, I kind of think like movies come down, you know, it's like a few nights really with these kind of movies. It's like the opening, if it's a hit, it's like the opening Friday and the Saturday and then the next Friday and Saturday. And then you're mm-hmm. kind of, you know, p- trickles down and then people are going to discover it at home. And I've certainly had many movies I've been involved in have benefited from, yes, they started theatrically. Some did better than others, but a lot of them really caught wind at home with people with unrepeated viewings. So I kind of look at it like Netflix is just, you know, speeding up the process. And I'm not just saying this, but I am super grateful to Netflix and, and other streamers for believing in these movies and giving folks like me, you know, the chance to keep telling these stories and trying to make audiences laugh, even if it's... Oh, yeah. Ab- I mean, for so many of us, at varying ages, but some of the best comedies we've seen were also ones that we just watched on repeat, just like you listen to those audio tracks. Like, I can't say how many times I've watched Airplane or Blazing Saddles at home with my siblings over and over again. Never saw them in a theater. So it's totally, like what Netflix is doing with this, it totally works. It's still hilarious if it's hilarious, right? Yeah. Um, You mentioned something else really, really important, I feel like, to today, which is that a lot of people are worried about navigating current events with comedy. Yep. You don't seem to be having a problem with that. I believe it's totally possible <laughs> to be <laughs> funny within a context that doesn't hurt people necessarily. Many have done it, whatever the current social and political views are. Can you tell us a little bit for, for audiences and listeners who love comedy, but feel trepidation about that? Or like, how do you approach it? Because it's a big thing these days, right? Yeah, it is a big thing. I mean, my movies are not overtly political. You know, I mean, they're more trying to tap into things in the culture you know, from a social standpoint. So I, I sort of stay away from political. Uh, it's just not where my, I, I care politically in my personal life. You know, I care deeply, sure. but my work tends to be more, I try to reflect like things I see in the culture. So I just try to write about real people in real situations, things I observe. And yeah, I do want to make sure I'm sensitive to being inclusive to not offending anybody. And and you do walk a line with comedy, but I also think my comedy, it tends to be like kind of kind and not mean spirited. Mm -hmm. It can be edgy and R rated at times, but the people, you know, somebody who works with me, my producing partner's like, there's no villains in your movies. And I think she's right. So I, I, I just approach it that way. I try not to overthink it too much. And I just try to be honestly like, as sensitive in my movies as I aim to be in my life, in my outside of movies. And it doesn't always work. We're human beings. We might say something that's like, oh, you know, I could have been more thoughtful about that or write a scene and go, is there, okay, maybe I have to rethink this. I'm, I'm way more aware of that kind of stuff now than I was, you know, 15 years ago. Sure. Well, yeah. And going back in time, because I want to start with kind of the early things and like getting her career off the ground. But in your, in your case, like I referenced before, Meet the Parents is a movie that like burst out on the scene and was hilarious and blew people away. And it totally taps into a universal 
somewhat universal experience. Yeah. And like uh, like myself and like a lot of people, I think went and saw that movie and were like, "Oh, I've I've lived this," or and then or maybe they they live it later and they're like, "Oh, I saw that movie and now I'm living it." That seems like a template in some ways for a lot of your work. Like, where did it come from? And and like, what was that kind of like in in getting that through and making having that movie made and launching this career, kind of taking us through that? Yeah, like from so, script to realization. So, Meet the Parents was I did not come up with the original concept or the first draft, and that's on the record that that's known. You know, it was based on a short film, and then Jim Hertzfeld wrote all the wrote all the early drafts of that movie. And originally, I think it was going to be maybe a different, slightly different tone and different actors, but Ben Stiller and Robert De Niro were getting involved and I had worked with Ben. He was a big fan of Safe Men, my first movie, which is kind of like a small indie cult movie. And we had worked a bit on Zoolander at the time, even though Zoolander came out later. And Ben invited me to a reading of it. And I sat in the back and, you know, listened to it with De Niro and Ben and some others and, you know, had some thoughts about it, thought it was hilarious and a lot of great scenes, but thought that maybe the tone could be shifted and it could be developed a bit more. And I basically pitched Jane Rosenthal and Jay Roach, the producer and director, my thoughts kind of going, I may never hear from them again, but, <laughs> you know, I, I, I had, I, I thought I had a unique perspective on it because I kind of lived it a little. My father-in-law is not like De Niro. He's a sweet, <laughs> sweet man and we get along great, but there's a bit of like, maybe the Jewish and not Jewish dynamic going on. That's a subtext <laughs> yes. in the movie. It's not overt. Oh, absolutely. My father-in-law is a sweet man as well, but that's exactly what it okay. is. Yes. Okay, well, there you go. Yeah. So, you know, and then they called me and said, all right, they hired me. And and I ended up working on that movie on and off for, you know, quite quite a while. And, you know, there were other writers as well and who came in a little bit. And then I came back. You know, and we didn't know, you never know what's going to happen, whether it's going to work. And suddenly it just exploded, you know, and that and was, yeah, go on. was Zoolander because you were developing and working on Zoolander where there's, was there a similar path of like, you know, a lot of times there's a lot of writers working on these things. And sometimes that can be a point of frustration or complication, but other times like you're, you're describing with meet the parents, it becomes this beautiful, like end result. Yeah. How do you navigate that like over and over again? Yeah, <laughs> like and do and do it so so successfully. I mean, Zoolander was one Ben Stiller and Drake Sather had written the early drafts. And then I came on and did a lot of the later writing either on my own or with Ben. So it was a very seamless process. That one it wasn't like there was a ton of writers on that nor on Meet the Parents by the way. Right. But yeah, you just, you know, have to you hope you a lot of those movies, if I'm not the director, you know, you need a strong director who has a vision mm. and make sure it doesn't go off the rails. You know, it's always great to get different perspectives, but you need to kind of make sure it, it, that the tone is staying consistent. And that was, I think what, maybe one of the things I brought to meet the parents, you know, it had so many funny moments and set pieces and setups, but maybe, you know, I certainly focused on tone and making it maybe a little more real and making, you know, adding this kind of private war between Stiller and De Niro and, you know, Jay was up for that idea and embraced it. And, you know, it was so that movie really is a combination of so many different people with under Jay Roach's leadership. And, you know, just kind of because of the movie gods, it just came out to be this kind of seamless, great, you know, character comedy. You having like come up working with and collaborating with these amazing 
talents. And I'm sure at many times it was intimidating. Like just read, sitting in the back of a reading with Ben Stiller and Robert De Niro sounds pretty intimidating and then pitching your idea. But like, how much does that later inform how you approach these features that you are the guiding force? Like it's you're writing it, but you're also going to be the director. And, you know, along came Polly and, you know, from on from there. Yeah, I mean, those movies, you know, I uh, my dream was, as I told you, was really to write and direct. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I was, it was so fortunate that I got brought on to these movies to be a writer exclusively and got to work closely and observe these great directors, Ben and Jay Roach and, and others that I did rewrites on, uncredited rewrites, you know, with other directors. But um, I felt like I was really ready, you know, by the time I did Along Came Polly, which is my second feature as writer-director, like, I just was ready. I felt like I I had watched these other directors navigate these big movies. I had a good sense of my tone. And you can't, you know, I had these, you know, huge movie stars, Ben Stiller, Jennifer Aniston, and then like Philip Seymour Hoffman, greatest living actor, and Alec Baldwin, incredible, and Hank Azaria, Deborah Messing, and on. But um, it's weird. You know, you just try to think of them as people, tell the story. I knew the story inside and out, so... I kind of knew what I thought worked and and I I don't know maybe I was naive. I just didn't think about them as icons that much, you know. I just tried to do my thing. And fortunately, they, they are movie stars, you know, Ben and Jennifer and these other people, but they're actors and they want to be directed if they feel like the director knows what they're doing. And that was that's kind of how it worked. And you yeah, I mean that that movie again just like the others even if you didn't originate the idea feels like it taps into something somewhat universal to the human experience, like even if it's so specific. Yeah. And and then again, like I love you, man. And it's funny because going through these, like I remember seeing these when they came out different times in my life, but so connected to experiences I had or would have. And I think that's part of the genius. And also when you talked about the not, you know, no bad guys idea, again, like how do you, you know, what's your, what's your process and approach when you come into these like, both of those movies that I just mentioned, like, and, and Me Time too, which kind of takes people at now at this yet another stage of, yeah. of like life and development. Like, do you really look inward initially? You talked about looking at the, at the culture too. Yeah. But it all feels like it's on one continuum. You know what I mean? It is. I mean, I appreciate you saying that. No, I, I do think about where I'm at. I certainly, I start, you know, what am I, what am I observing in the zeitgeist and where am I at? What's my connection to that? And what is relatable and universal? And that's often my jumping off point. I mean, other filmmakers write these amazing sci-fi stories and, you know, or true biopics of famous people. And I revere them. It's just not what I do. I I look inwards, (laughs) you know, I kind of look at the culture and look inwards and think about like, because I think that'll allow me to tell the best story I can. And so, yeah, I do think about that. And I want these movies to be relatable to people around the world. Whatever stage of life, I want you to have an entry point and to be like, okay, I'm writing about things that kind of happen every day, but I'm trying to shine a magnifying glass on them. And you find the comedy, so much of your comedy is situational. And I think that's a bit of a lost art in writing comedy or directing comedy in that you create circumstances where you're milking some kind of irony or some kind of drama for jokes. And so much of what people think comedy is, is like a gag joke. Yeah. But so much of what you're doing is a plot engineered joke. 
and I, I don't know if I'm articulating it right because I'm not a great comedy writer anyway, but can you explain a little bit about the process of developing a joke out of character and plot and not just like, I'm doing a funny thing right now? Because I think that's a really important distinction in the films you, you make. That, that's really well said. So you clearly know comedy very, very well. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. You do. I mean, listen, I grew up on the other mo- on Airplane, on Naked Gun, on the Mel Brooks movies, and I love them. Those are gag movies, and they're less character-based and they're joke-based, and they're incredible. Um, totally funny, yeah, in their funny. own way. Yeah, You know, my way in has always been through through character, and so that's my obsession. And so I just think of a character and I put, I think of like situations that would make them feel super awkward, super (laughs) alienated, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen and specifically to this character. And so (laughs) it doesn't have to be a huge thing. It's Ben Stiller is a neurotic kind of keeps it close to the vest character in Along Came Polly and what's a nightmare, his boss coming in and, and taking the urinal right next to him. And uh, having this whole conversation while he's at this urinal, that, that to me is based on me. I, I, I remember <laughs> going to a Knicks game. I used to go to Knicks games with my dad, basketball games in New York. And these urinals, you know, they're so crowded and people would, it was before the age of dividers, by the way. They just had the trough. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. So, you know, you're, you're not at a divider and I felt all this pressure and people are waiting and <laughs> Suddenly, I file that away somewhere, and it becomes a set piece years later in with Alec Baldwin and Ben Stiller. And so it's that kind of thing. You know, I try to just it all starts with character and and or little observations that I make or that, you know, usually just hellish things I've experienced. You know, like in me time, I think about myself going to Burning Man. And <laughs> I, I've never been, probably I'd have a good time because I do like doing things that put me out of my comfort zone, but I put myself in that place, and that's where you know, this whole Huck Chella sequence in, in the movie Me Time, you know, comes from. The idea of taking someone and putting them in a situation they're not equipped to handle is yeah. like the source of drama, whether it's comedy or, or tragedy, right? Exactly. It's just like how you treat it. Can you explain a little bit like how, how do you have to treat it differently? I know you exaggerate things or, or it's how the moment is played, but like, you know, talking to actors like Mark Wahlberg, you know, he does all kinds of things. I mean, I've, I've always thought he was hilarious. Like, but he, you know, he can do comedy, he can do not comedy. How do you like make it when you're directing someone like that? Because we know with Ben Stiller or Kevin Hart, that comedy's kind of more in their yeah. wheelhouse or more expected. Sure. How do you work with someone different about like, this is, we're going to play this horrible moment for the joke or not, or be straight with it? Yeah, I mean, my, I always feel like I want the characters in my movies to think they're in a drama. Because if they think they're in a comedy and they're trying to be funny, we're dead. It's never going to be funny. Mm, so yeah. with a, with someone like Mark Wahlberg or even back in the day, Phil Hoffman, you know, in yeah. Along Came Polly, who was not a comedic actor, I really just want them to play the truth of the scene. And I think that's why Mark is so good, because mm. the more he's such a good actor and he played, the more committed he is. All, I, all he has to do is say, these lines are ridiculous. The situation is ridiculous. <laughs> but I want him to play it as if he's totally committed. He thinks that throwing his 44th birthday is a big deal. That's not a big deal. The world knows that turning 44 is a non-event. But to him, it's everything. <laughs> and, um, you know, So I just want him to play it straight and committed. And yes, we try different jokes and improv lines and 
things like that. But I'm not ever directing him to be funny. You know, that's never the way. And same with Kevin Hart. You know, Kevin Hart, his he is inherently comedic. You look at Kevin Hart mm-hmm. and you just smile. Okay. And we all know that. But I also don't want him to try to be funny, you know, or to be broad and this and that. And he's a great actor. He can play it straight. Him playing it straight is still going to be ridiculously funny. That's a really good point. And it also, like, talking about those movies, they're just wall-to-wall jokes. But so much of the genius of those naked guns and airplanes was that they had all these actors who were not comedians and were not playing jokes, were saying absurd things, but they were like these old school, like, <laughs> like straight. You know, and that's where the joke came, right? Well, that was brilliant on the part of the Zucker brothers. And, you know, it was like, oh, let's get, you know... It, Leslie Nielsen was not a comedic actor. Right. I mean, you know, Lloyd Bridges. I mean, the, you know, it's like you just got to play it, play it, play it straight and the absurdity will take care of itself. You carved out a niche and you're working with Netflix on Me Time, which is great. How do we who love comedy, like, how do we get more of it? How do we like, <laughs> what's yeah. the future? Because it doesn't feel like there's enough. And I genuinely think there needs to be a whole lot more right now than there is. Like maybe more than there ever was. No, listen, that's honestly when people ask me about me time, it's like, I just want people, the world is in a challenging place. And what was so fun about previewing the movie was a lot of people that clicked with it would just be like, it was just nice to forget about things and just laugh for 90 minutes, you know? And that's, I do think we need that. It's a release. You know, we we go through a lot of bad stuff and exist day to day and existential stuff and the fear that the planet's burning and Roe v. Wade and on and on and on. Um, you know, so my goal is to allow people some relief from from the, the challenges that we all face. But you know, I don't know. I don't really know the answer. I think that we just have to. Maybe if movies like this, you know, do okay, more people will go, yeah, they let's what's what happened? People still like to laugh. Why are we making, you know, three right. of these a year? What is two of them instead of, you know, 20? Yeah. Or why does everything have to be the darkest, grittiest version? Well, can we exactly. get exactly? Can, yeah, I mean, can we laugh a little or even have like some sense of humor in some of the things that aren't like you like we were talking about before, like weren't necessarily overtly comedic, but yeah. like, can they also be funny? Can yeah. we mix it a little? It's, I mean, comedy now on TV, and I love a bunch of it. It tends to be, it's not, most of it isn't like laugh out loud funny. You know, it's uh-huh. like, it's, you may smile, but you're, you know, it, even though they're half hours, they're, they're almost like dramas with a little bit of comedy. You know, we don't have many shows that are Seinfeld anymore. I mean, of course, you still have Curb Your Enthusiasm and, you know, It's Always Sunny is still running and things like that. But yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, you know, movies are at a real crossroads, I think, you know, other than Marvel and and things like that. I think it'll be interesting to see, like, can they still hit the culture in the way that they did, you know, certainly when I was coming up as a filmmaker. Yeah. I mean, I guess uh, just to finish, because I mean, we could go on forever, (laughs) but I would (laughs) talk about comedy, but I want to, I guess, if you were advising people to kind of like to learn how to get better at writing comedy yeah. or creating comedy, it is such a, such a finely honed skill. How would you advise them to do it? I always would say you start with character because if you don't have character who wants something very badly, 
who is after something that's really hard to get and you have to develop that character and find out their foibles and what makes them messed up in some way, you won't have anything. Because I, I see a, read a lot of scripts that's like, but it's a funny situation. You're like, but the characters don't have a point of view. It's they're, they're vanilla, they're bland, so I don't mm. care. So I to me, starting with character and really treating these people as living, breathing things and they what kind of music do they like what kind of tv what kind of books what is what's their relationship history really treating those as you know deeply as you can and then and then going deep into their shortcomings to me is is the key it's always been the key for me whether these movies work or not that's what i've aimed to do is is have these characters that are that feel real and um you know in situations that feel relatable and that and choices they make we make really weird choices under pressure. So you put them under immense pressure, and if you've created a good character, you're going to be delighted and surprised by some of the truly horrible choices they make, and that results in a lot of comedy, I believe. I think that's well said. I mean, I think that's part of why they're they can be enduring is because there's something more than the joke. There's something yeah. like human and and and, and universal. That's there, what we so. try to do. I mean, even in it's a ridiculous movie like Zoolander, we literally tried. <laughs> I swear. I think one of the reasons that it lasts in a different way than maybe some of the like Saturday Night Live spinoffs, you know, of ske- from based on sketches is like, we really did treat Derek Zoolander as like a real person with a dramatic arc, as re- crazy <laughs> as that sounds. I know it does sound ridiculous, but... No, I, I think that, that he, he being Zoolander, <laughs> I think he sets, he stands apart in some way that people felt like they related to him or they... They feel something about him yeah. beyond just he's a vehicle for laughter. I think there's so. something we certainly yeah. aimed, you know, aimed to do that. So we don't always get there in these movies, but I promise, you know, it's sometimes like, you know, movie critics look at them, they, ah, oh, you're just trying to do dumb base jokes. And sometimes they're right, but we, we do aim <laughs> to, you know, put something beneath the laughter because I do think that will allow, allow the laughter to be deeper and to have the mu- the movie stay with you a little bit longer. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, John, for your time. It's been really fun talking to you and excited for people to see me time and get to laugh for a little bit. <laughs> Thanks, man. No, it's Hopefully. great. It was a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, John, for coming on the podcast. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I love comedies. I grew up on them. To me, the experience of laughing hysterically at a movie in a theater or at home is just one of a kind and one of the great things that can come out of movies and television. And I really think it's a shame that people don't pursue it more. It's just such a reward as an audience. So I'm grateful to people like John for trying to continue to find ways to do it. And I hope more filmmakers take into consideration how much we need it. So think about better ways to make comedy or ways to make comedy at all. And let's, uh, let's shut down this idea that it can't be done anymore. You can read all about filmmaking and filmmaking tech and education and news at nofilmschool.com. Please be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to this podcast and leave us a comment. Let us know what you think. Send us your questions for our weekly news show, which comes out on Thursdays or sometimes Fridays every week. Send those questions to editor at nofilmschool.com. 
We really love hearing from you. I always say this, but it changes our dynamic. We don't know everything. Nobody knows everything. But together, with your input and feedback, we can sort of crowdsource knowledge and all gain a better understanding of this craft and this industry. Thanks so much for listening.